Let me just say a couple of things before we jump into these passages. I wondered when weeks ago uh, I thought about coming here what to, what to preach. Maybe uh, different sermons from all over the Word of God. And then I thought, no, maybe, maybe a series would be the best thing. But I also thought that there would be a possibility that I would be performing a funeral while I was here. Death happens. And, and so as I thought about the possibility of doing a funeral while here, I came to the conclusion that I would either preach John 14 or I would preach on the reunion between Joseph and his father Jacob. You're going to hear a funeral sermon today. I hope that God will open your eyes to his heart today. Over the past weeks, we have looked at a Joseph who was walking through a dark place. He came out of a pit, and for quite a few years, may very well have been wondering, where is God? Now, we know that it says God was with him, and it was manifested, very much exhibited by the way he served others and was a blessing to others. But there, he was a human being, and there must have been times when Joseph just said, God, what could you possibly bring out of this? What are your purposes in this dark time? You may have gone through that a time or two in your life, wondering how could God use this to prosper my heart, not in the worldly definition of prosper, but in terms of developing character within me so that I am a blessing to others, so that I may be a part of his kingdom to come. But God is wiser than we are. God's ways are not our ways. His intentions and purposes are different from ours. And the sooner we learn that in life, the better. Because then we can cooperate with God's purposes for not only our lives, but for our world. We're only here a short time and we're saying, how can God use me like he used Joseph? And we're at the end of my life. I can look back and say, a lot of people have hurt me. A lot of evil has been done. You intended it specifically to bring evil, but God always intended to override that evil, even use it to bring about good. And we see that in the life of Joseph, God was directing his people to the promised seed, the coming of Jesus Christ, who the, the family of Joseph desperately needed, who we desperately need. Now, I don't know if you have ever been in a watchtower, but there are texts in the Bible that I consider watchtower texts. I think that the story of Joseph has been a watchtower text. But let me explain what I mean by that. 
Um, at one point in the life of the disciples, it's recorded in Luke chapter 9 and in a couple of other Gospels, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John to the Mount of Transfiguration. They see Jesus Christ in his divinity, in all of his glory. Here is one who is man, but he is the Son of God. Remember, Peter is full of worship, and he says, I like it here, let's stay. And then God sends the disciples down from that incredible vision of his glory, where where God says, this is my Son, whom I love, You listen to every word that he says. And the disciples come down from that watchtower, if you will, where they can see the lay of the land, and they end up in a valley where the other disciples can't cast a demon out of a boy. Sometimes in the battlefield, when we are dealing with darkness, when we are dealing with demons, even though we don't recognize it's demons, we forget God. And we forget his purposes. But in the watchtower, we're saying, oh, the battle is raging, but I see that reinforcements are coming, and I know who wins. We read these words as a watchtower. John 14, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, but I go to prepare a place for you that you may be with me. Watchtower text. I shared that with an elderly lady in Comstock Park years ago. She had gone through a very difficult marriage, very difficult family life. And now she's on a respirator, she's in pain. And I read John 14, verses 1 through 3 with her. I didn't even know if she was listening. And she nodded her head. She was in the tower, and she knew everything was going to be okay. Now today... We're going to look at the reunion of Joseph and Jacob. And I I find this to be powerful. I find this to be something that tugs at the heart. But I also find this the fulfillment of our deepest dreams. Because goodbyes are hard. I cannot imagine the day when I have to say goodbye to my wife. I think about that. In all reality, when you get to be our age, and I know that Max and I are the oldest guys in this room. (laughs) And I got my glasses off, so he's the only one I can see right now. But that we think about these things. We realize that that day is coming when we will say goodbye to our spouse. Goodbyes are hard. John Glenn, you know, the oldest of the astronauts, never said goodbye to his wife. When he'd get on, the, uh, get on that rocket, when he got on the space shuttle in 1998, he said to his wife what he always said to her, I'm going to go to the corner and buy a pack of gum. Maybe you can relate. Because you find goodbye to be a word very difficult to say. And death, is it not the most difficult goodbye of all? If you turn, you can, uh, you've been reading this. Um, you'll find in Genesis chapter 46 that Jacob goes to Egypt. 
Now, I'm not going to go through a bunch of review. Many, most of you have been with me in this series. But it says, So Israel set out with all that was his, and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Do you notice the name change there? Jacob is now Israel. And I believe that's because something fundamental changes in us when we believe. Here's a man who had wrestled with God, wrestled with men. He is now the prince of God. God is working out his purposes in his life. He gets a new name, Israel. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night, and he said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. And then it says in verse 28. Let's go back to verse 26. All those, and this is chapter 46 of Genesis, all those who went to Egypt with Jacob, those who were his direct descendants, not counting his sons' wives, numbered 66 persons. With the two sons who had been born to Joseph in Egypt, the members of Jacob's family which went to Egypt were 70 in all. Now Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to get directions to Goshen. When they arrived in the region of Goshen, Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. Verse 30, Israel said to Joseph, Now I am ready to die, since I have seen for myself that you are still alive. And then verses... uh, Let's see, chapter 47, verses 28 to 31. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If I found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt, but when I rest with But when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I will do as you say, Joseph said. Swear to me, he said. Then Joseph swore to him, and Israel worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. This is the word of our Lord. Amen. Amen. I believe that Jacob and Joseph would have agreed that we were not made to say goodbye. They were forced into a season of 20 years, believing that maybe they would never see each other again. Very, very doubtful that they would see each other again. But then God did something that neither of them expected. On heaven's calendar, God had circled a date and he had written these words, the reunion of Jacob with his son. Aha! Can't wait for that day. 
I want us to look at that reunion for a few moments through the lens of seeing how the reunion of Jacob and Joseph is a picture of your reunion with you, with with your loved ones, and with Jesus Christ himself. Because I believe that sometimes that becomes doubtful to us. Hints of the the get-together between Jacob and Joseph and the family surfaced when Joseph revealed his identity to his brothers. Remember this emotional roller coaster that Joseph was on. I mean, he is going between the extremes of of great love and compassion and really maybe a sense that i got to get back at these guys. But ultimately, he opened the throne room and he said to his brothers, come close. And he kissed them and he embraced them and he wept over them. For those of you who have not been with us in this series from the beginning, um, in this story we find that Joseph weeps seven times. He was a man who was moved because he saw God's purposes at work. He saw the power of reunion, of reconciliation. Uh, I remember uh, some years ago, I think it was probably 2014, we opened the doors of our new school in Zuni, and a man rolled into my office with a wheelchair. And he sat in front of me, and he began to weep. And I'm looking at this man, and I'm going, this is not the kind of guy I would consider to be a weeper. And he looked at me and said, I am going to see many people, many Zunis in heaven because of the light of this place. And then he wept. And then he looked at his wife and said, I think we should support a ministry like this. And she tapped him and said, we do, we do. He was weeping because he saw God's purposes being worked out. A picture of Jesus Christ. A weeping over brokenness, but also over what would happen to bring that brokenness to healing. Mercy won over revenge. And he said, I'm Joseph. And the very first question is, is my dad still alive? He doesn't ask, where in the world have you been? Look what you've done. There's no arrogance or anger, just a desire to see dad again. Joseph forgave his brothers, and then he decreed, I love this, a family reunion. Oh, oh I wish we had a Veenstra family reunion. Um, maybe we will. Carl, I'm going to give you the responsibility for that. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Family reunions. Do you think that is an echo from the heart of the Lord? That in the new kingdom, he says, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. A reunion, a feast, in the wedding of the Lamb with his church. And Joseph had all the resources to pull it off. But now, if you go back to Genesis 45 for a minute... You picture this caravan of brothers 
as they're returning to Canaan. They arrive in Egypt during the time of famine. They have emaciated donkeys and dust-covered robes. But now look at them as they go back to Canaan. They're all driving new pickup trucks. They're, uh, they have goatskin boots, leather jackets, and brand new Stetsons. They really do look like something. Their wagons are full of grain. And the children see their dads coming down the road and they run to meet them. And not far behind them is Jacob. Rangy silver hair reaches his shoulders. He's got a beard that rivals the beards of Duck Dynasty. He doesn't get out of his chair as, as easily as he used to. His skin is leathery from, from a century of sunshine. He squints at he, as he looks at his sons. And then he sees the plunder. One of them speaks up and says, Dad, Joseph is alive. And I'm forgiven. And Egypt's gates are open. I'm getting ahead of myself. Dad, Joseph is alive. In fact, he's the ruler of Egypt. And it says Jacob was stunned. And you can almost see the servants of Jacob holding him steady, looking at the brothers and saying, don't you dare to lie. Lie to your father again. But when they told him everything that Joseph had said, when he saw the carts that Joseph had sent to carry him back, it says the spirit of Jacob revived. When he saw the evidence that they couldn't have gotten all this stuff on their own, when he heard about how Joseph had inquired about him, his spirit lifted, his shoulders straightened, his eyes began to sparkle. And for the first time in two decades, the old patriarch had hope in his heart that he was going to see Joseph again. When Jesus was about to go to the cross, his disciples are discouraged. They're frightened. He says, I'm going to die. And then we see this lengthy teaching, the longest teaching of Jesus in the Gospels, John 13 to John 17. And he looks at these disciples, and he is preparing them to be his representatives in the world. And he knew they would go through trouble. Every one of them would die a tragic death, except John. He would die in exile on the, on the island of Patmos. But he was looking at these disciples and saying, I want to share something with you. And this is going to give you courage to go on no matter what you encounter in life, even death. I am going to prepare a place for you. And it's a place of love because I want you to be with me. And I want to be with you. But notice that when Jesus says this, and, and when I was a kid, I, I, I said to you last week, I always kind of looked at this as Tom Bodet in Motel 6. You know, that, that somehow Jesus was going to go off to heaven, he's going to fluff up the pillows, make the beds, make sure that there was a breakfast ready for them in the following morning, and then they could live in that mansion of God. That's not how, that's not how it plays out. What is Jesus going to do here to prepare them for home, for heaven, 
for reunion time. They don't want to see him go. They want to see him again. Jesus said, you will see me again, but the only way that you're going to enter into the presence of the holy is if I make you holy. And that means that I've got to go to the cross. I have to experience homelessness and forsakenness so that you can be accepted as sons and daughters of the Most High forever. And you can be with me. And I with you. That's what Jesus is about to do. And I believe that what Christ shows us here in the story of Joseph is what had to take place in order for two people to come and see each other again. The cross. And Israel said, I'm convinced, my son, my son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before he dies. So Israel took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba, and he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. The very first thing in store was a worship service. He didn't forget God. He bowed before God, and he said to his whole family, we need God. We've had enough of this looking at each other. We've had enough of this business of arguing and and, and getting caught up in the evil and the brokenness. We need to look to God. And so he offered worship and thanksgiving. Does anyone know how old Jacob is at this point? He's 130. Anybody here approaching 130? Don't tell me. Oh, someone just pointed at her husband. How many of you feel 130? How many of you have had a hunch that Jacob might just have had a hitch in his get-along. He's no spring chicken. Most 130-year-olds don't pack it up and move to another country, but they do, and they do with passion when they have the knowledge that the prince is alive. He's sitting on the throne. He can't wait to see them, and he's their brother. There is nothing that could have kept Jacob from making this journey. Can you imagine the anticipation This whole journey, and I don't know how long it took. My son was in the Holy Land. He had gone from from, uh, Jerusalem and made his way to the border of Egypt just a couple of months ago. But they took a bus. These folks are riding donkeys, probably. But the anticipation, going to see him again. What am I going to say? How am I going to act? What a gift this is. And we read further in the text, this wide-angle lenses, and you know, we wonder why these genealogy. The narrator tells us the name of every person in the caravan, the sons and the wives and the children. No one is getting left out. The whole family's making this trip. Not a one of them deserves this. But God, in His marvelous grace, is giving to them a gift unforeseen. And part of that gift is they will be reconciled with the one they love. And what a trip this must have been for these hillbillies, these people of the pasture. If you look at chapter 46, verse 33, uh, Joseph said, When Pharaoh calls you in and asks, What's your occupation? You should answer, Your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on, just as our fathers did. Then he will allow you to settle in the region of Goshen, for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. And isn't it interesting 
This is a parenthetical comment. But isn't it interesting that throughout salvation history, the people that God chooses are shepherds. We're shepherds. We're called to be shepherds. We're called to not look at ourselves, but to look at the needs of others. We're saying, I want this person to be fed. I want this person to be protected. I want this community to flourish. And again and again, from Moses to David to Jesus, what does he say to Peter? Peter, feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. This is the call of God, even though the world may say, shepherds, hmm the call of God. You remember the show called the Beverly Hillbillies? All right. Yeah. A couple of you didn't have television sets. The Egyptians' reaction to the children of Israel reminds me of the reaction that the people of Beverly Hill had towards Jed Clampett, Granny, Ellie Mae, and Jethro whenever they entered a room. Every episode would end up with this beat old truck, and there is Granny rocking in her chair at the top. That's Jacob. And they are coming into ancient Egypt. There couldn't be a stronger contrast between ancient, um, uh, ancient Egypt was the most powerful nation on the face of the earth up to that point, and then Canaan, where people tended sheep and cattle. You don't just pick up and go to New York City when you're in Canaan. At one point, Jacob looks and he sees a cloud of dust on the horizon. There's this wide flank of horses and chariots coming toward him. What he sees is an entourage of loyalty, soldiers, officials, flags. As they get closer, though, Jacob sees the man at the middle of the commotion, and he looks into his face, and he sees the face of his mother. He sees Rachel. And he goes, that's Joseph. He is alive. Joseph cannot contain himself. The text tells us that the moment Joseph saw Jacob, he threw his arms around his father and he wept for a long, long time. Forget all the pomp and formality. He jumps out of the chariot, runs to his father, buries his face in Jacob's shoulder, and he just weeps. People, this is reunion. This is what it's going to be like. This is what God has in store. Know the heart of God that He doesn't just take your fishing partner from you and just leave you hanging. God doesn't just take your spouse and you're walking through the hallways and end up in a bedroom, a double bed, where your husband or your wife used to be with you. Isn't God brokenhearted about that? Sin has left a horrible brokenness and stain in our world. God knows more about that brokenness than we can even explain from the pulpit. And we know how difficult it is to see change in people. We need patience when we pray for our enemies, when we even pray for our children, what patience is required for us on our part to see them come back to the Lord or to even see incremental changes in their attitude towards the world. Growth is organic. You plant a seed and you water it and you do whatever you can. But sometimes it's slow going. But all to the end, 
that Jesus Christ would pay for that sin. Give his Holy Spirit to prompt us every day to overcome that sin, to make us ready to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. 20 years of pent-up emotion come bubbling out, and I have a hunch that both father and son were saying to themselves, I'm never going to say goodbye to you again. No one likes to say goodbyes. For some of you, this is the challenge of this season through your life. You're thinking, I've got to get through this sadness. I've got to get through this raging loneliness. This separation has exhausted you and your spirit. Like Jacob, you are grieved. You want to move on. The rest of the world seems to be moving on. But you're, you're stuck. You're paralyzed. Memories come like daggers reminding you again. It's almost like every day you have to say goodbye all over again. I'm wondering if this is your challenge and if you'd receive this message from your Heavenly Father. And that is simply, all goodbyes are on the calendar. God never intended for us, His children, to live in a world laden with goodbyes. But He's permitted a certain quotient, a limited quantity of goodbyes. But the day is coming when we will enter a land where goodbyes are said no more. It's almost like every goodbye is a speck of sand in an hourglass and there's a limited number. And once the last grain of sand goes through, God is going to turn, He is not going to turn the, the, uh, the glass upside down and start all over again. We're headed to a time and we're headed to a place where we will put goodbye out of our vocabulary and it will never be stated again. And the picture of Joseph and Jacob is just a foretaste, a warm-up, a parable, a portrayal of our union with Christ. Did you know that the promised union between God and his people is mentioned in the New Testament over 300 times? It is not a passing topic in the Bible. It is the topic. And don't lose sight of it. Remember last week we talked about proximate purposes, remote purposes, and ultimate purposes? And, and I used the example of the, 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 the Detroit Lions. I can't even say Detroit Lions. I'm, you know, trying to make a first down, trying to make a touchdown, and maybe trying to win a game. and Super Bowl, oxymoron. But what is God's ultimate purpose? God's ultimate purpose is to return and, and make this world new. Where there will be no more brokenness, no more weeping, no more tears in our eyes. And the thought of Jesus actually touching your face and wiping the tears away, and those tears would never return, is an awesome thought. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, verse 8, now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing, the day, the coming of Christ, 300 plus times in the New Testament. But when you see Jesus, you will see them. Now if you doubt that, I want you to think again of Jesus turning to his disciples 
you, plural, will be with me in the conscious presence of your Lord. You'll be with me. Peter, James, and John had already seen Moses and Elijah. They're in heaven. They're with the Lord. They're awaiting the consummation. They're awaiting His return. But there are these relationships going on. A lot could be said about this, and I'm going to limit that this morning. But I do not want you to doubt that relationships with family, loved ones, will come to an end. There will be a huge family reunion with the Master. So reassure one another with these words. I want you to hang on to these promises. Because you have lost much, or you think you've lost much. You've buried not just a body, but dreams. Death seems to take so much. But the promise of God is that God is looking toward the restoration of all things. And the restoration includes the restoration of his family. I want to close with a, with a story. And I, I know that the story of Colton Burpo, a four-year-old who survived an appendectomy, uh, his father Todd, a pastor, wrote a book, Heaven is for Real. I've read the book, and I know there have been lots of criticisms, but if this little boy has received a gift from God to share not only with his family but to the world, I, I think we need to listen to him. His parents are thrilled at his survival, but they are stunned to hear what happens during that procedure. After surviving appendectomy, this four-year-old son began telling his parents that he'd gone to heaven. It's written about in this book. His parents are doubtful, and they, but he's saying things that no, there's no way Colton could have known. He, he knew where his father had gone to pray during the surgery. He knew where his mother was standing during the recovery. There's no way that he could have known. He, tells, he began to tell his parents about family members that he had met who had died before he was born, namely his sister. One day Colton said to his mother, you had a baby die in your, mommy, in your tummy, didn't you, mom? The parents had never mentioned this to Colton. He was only four years old. He was too young to process it. And she said, who told you that I had a baby in my tummy? And he said, she did, Mommy. Both parents felt a fresh pain of the most difficult day of their lives. Colton sensed it. He said, it's okay, Mommy. She's okay. God adopted her. She got down at eye level and said, don't you mean that Jesus adopted her? And he said, no, Mommy, Jesus' daddy did. Colton described the girl that the parents had never seen. They didn't even know she was a girl. What's her name, the mom asked Colton. She doesn't have a name. You didn't give her a name, which was true. They never gave the baby a name. But there was no way that Colton could have known this. But he had one more memory, and he shared it with his parents before he went out to play. He said, Mom and Dad, she said that she can't wait for you to get to heaven. Now, I don't know where you file a story like that, but I file it under hope. I hope you hear me when I say, someone in heaven is saying the same about you. We can't wait for you to get here. Hebrews chapter 11. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, 
Let us throw everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And that means that we cannot look at this passage and say that I'm so heavenly-minded that I am of no earthly good. That cloud of witnesses is telling us to persevere, to keep on living the life that God has called us to live. Not that dream that the health, wealth, and prosperity people are offering you, but the dream that there's better things to come and we want others to join us in that journey. And that means that we even have to make changes in our worship services, changes in the way we do ministry as shepherds so that as many people in the Ellsworth community can come before the throne of grace and join you in that great getting up morning and that great reunion that God has in store. Awaiting you and awaiting me is a grand reunion. And I believe that as long as we, like Jacob, can set our hearts on the reunion with the prince, and we, like Jacob, will pick up our staff, and no matter how old we are, and no matter how tired we feel, We'll feel a fresh energy in our soul. And someday we'll look up the road or across the gathering and we'll see them. And most of all, we're going to see Jesus, the Prince of Heaven. We will see him. We will see him. And we will be with him forever. Can't wait for that day. And it has revived in my soul the sense that I want to keep living. As long as God lends me breath, I want to keep living. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would take these teachings and embed them in our soul, that we would be people of hope and not people of despair. We meditated this morning on something of great comfort. Help us to take this vantage point, to remember these promises so that we would live our lives in confidence and strength and not let our troubles trouble us. Make yourself real to us now as we leave this place and continue living. Prepare us, O Lord, to meet you, not just here on Sunday morning, but prepare to meet you in our kitchens, in the countryside, wherever we go, even in the dark places. Restore our souls. In Jesus we pray. Amen. I'm going to